I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. John Gray gave his first sermon at 21 years old to his childhood congregation at the Bethel Baptist Church in his hometown of Cincinnati. A year later, he was asked to join Grammy-winning gospel singer Kirk Franklin on tour. But John felt a deep spiritual calling back to the pulpit. After two years on the road, he left the tour to preach. As word spread of his unique ability to connect with diverse congregations, John Gray caught the attention of the leaders of Lakewood Church. In 2013, Joel Olstein invited John to lead the Wednesday night service at Lakewood. Within three years, attendance quadrupled. Joel Olstein wrote the foreword for John's book called I Am Number Eight, Overlooked and Undervalued but Not Forgotten by God. John and his family are now starring in a show on OWN, a docuseries called The Book of John Gray. John and his wife, Aventure, are managing their jobs, two busy children, and in-laws while ministering people through life's toughest challenges. They'll have you laughing and crying and saying one of my favorite phrases about problems. I never thought of it that way before. Their new show airs on Saturday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central, only on OWN. Well, I've seen your videos, and I agree with you. You are not my daddy's preacher. (laughs) I I think that's a good thing. It's a great thing to be able to bring spirituality and what we've known about religion into a forum where we can see God and feel God. Yeah, I've never, I've never wanted to be some of the things that I saw growing up. When I knew that I was called to ministry, I actually was like, God, for real, you're gonna hijack my life. I was gonna be this big time lawyer, maybe a politician. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm called to ministry? I'm a teenage, you know, a teenager at the time. And I really felt like- How old were you exactly? I was when 13. You, when you felt the call? I was 13, it was a Tuesday night. And it was a revival at the Bethel Baptist Church Whoa. in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. Stained glass windows, the Hammond B3 organ. Uh, and the gentleman who was the revivalist as he was speaking, I literally felt God say, I'm calling you into the ministry. And it was- You at, felt God. I felt God. You felt that at 13. At 13. What, is it true you were directing the choir at age seven? Seven years old. The Edward Singers, it's our family choir. Did you even know what you were doing? I did. I've always had a, my heart, kind of revolves around music. I understood harmony, I understood parts, and uh, from there, music just became a very big part of my expression. But weren't you guys living in Cincinnati and going to a Baptist church or a church that was really kind of restrictive and didn't even want you to yeah. like, make a sound? No, absolutely. If you shouted, this is the church that would kindly escort you out. Really? There was one lady, and she was the sweetest lady in the world, had a little bit of facial hair, but... I <laughs> <laughs> After a certain age, whatever, okay. you know, she has a little sweet goatee going and she, <laughs> she'd feel the spirit and she'd, thank you, thank you. And the ushers would kindly come to her row, Miss, Miss Hogan, we need you to come on out of here. And they would carry her out. So that, to me, as a young person was like, okay, if I feel something, keep it to yourself. We were a very high-minded church. We were, we, we had high church, you know, we were very professional. We were upper middle class Negroes. Uh-huh. And so you need to play that role. And so uh-huh. your Jesus had to be restricted to a 
<laughs> All men, you know, British accent yeah. in Cincinnati, black, black. with a British accent. Wow. Never been to England. Never been to England. So, so when you, you all moved away from that. I did. Uh, what was interesting is that I think me being there kind of helped to stretch people because even though my expression was very different from the culture, I was accepted because I grew up there. So as I started, continued to sing, and I was, I was able to kind of bring people along, and they were able to kind of get free. And so, you know, the expression in our worship changed because I just couldn't contain it. You know, uh -huh. this idea of God was becoming very real to me. I knew at seven years old that God was real for myself. Would you say then, since you're, I mean, I have known all along that the reason why I ended up being who I am and have been carried by the divine is because I had a special relationship. Would you say that that special relationship and that connection then sort of defined who you were as a person? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, particularly after my mother and father divorced, yeah. which was about four and a half years old, mm -hmm. uh, this idea of a heavenly father mm -hmm. was so essential for my development because my father was not around. I saw my father four times in my life and I always, you know, kind of made this iconic figure of my father, which is not the truth of his reality. Yes. He was battling addiction, heroin. He was battling through, you know, different issues of crime and, and all these other things that my mother never told me about. She never demonized him, which I thought was a phenomenal way to carry herself. She always wanted me to pursue a relationship with him to a degree. Uh, and, and it was only after I was grown that she kind of shared some of the things that she had to walk through. Uh, but my father not being there was it's probably the foundational tenet that kind of drives every other area of my life. Here I am at 42 years old, sitting next to uh, someone that has been used to change the whole world. And once this is over, I would love to have called my dad and say, Dad, you'd be proud of me today. Mm -hmm. On my dad's deathbed, I told him, I forgive you for not being there, and I'm going to make your name good because mm -hmm. I'm John W. Gray III. And I believe that I'm a continuation of his legacy. And I was the last person to see him alive. I sang hymns over his bed, prayed with him, told him I was gonna make him proud. And so even now at 42, sometimes I look out the window hoping he's coming down the street. Wow. And I've only seen him four times. That is amazing. I, I just, I love him and I didn't know him. How were you able to forgive him for not being there? My connection to God helped me to literally deconstruct his life backwards. I had to look at his life through his death. My relationship to his mother, my grandmother, who was a very stern, very mm -hmm. closed off, unemotional. So you got to see who he was. Absolutely. By deconstructing his life. And so I had grace for him. Ah, I was able to not be angry because I understood what it must have been like to live in that atmosphere every single day with a woman who you could never please. And if you failed, then of course you were shunned. And so uh, to a large extent, I began to have more grace for my dad. Even now my son is John Gray the fourth and I plan on continuing that legacy. That boy better name his son John the fifth <laughs> or the $300 I got in the savings account is not going to his college fund. <laughs> so you're the first black pastor at Lakewood Church. Yes. Joel Olstein's mega church in Houston, the largest congregation in the country. Yes. What does that mean to you that one of the most influential religious leaders of our time, certainly in the United States, shares that platform with you? 
I don't even know how to describe it. The thing about Pastor Joel, because I'm this fiery, loud, kind of yeah. boisterous guy, and then he's the sweetest guy in the whole world. Yes. If he's in Friday the 13th, he'd still be this guy. <laughs> Jason, don't stab people. You're supposed to love people. Just be positive. Yeah, yeah, the reason why we connected is because we have different expressions, but the same heart. He casts a wide net of hope. Anybody is allowed to walk into that church and find hope in life. Every single person that we will ever encounter was created by the same God. I believe that and everybody has inherent value. And so we were able to connect, but to be the first African-American uh, to, to literally be on staff and just to weekly speak into the life of the church is a high honor. And you all started out on Wednesday nights, your Wednesday night preaching with 2,500 people. Mm -hmm. Now here it's 9,000 people. Yeah, it's about 9,000 on a Wednesday. On a Wednesday? In Houston with traffic, Oprah. You can't even stay saved in the traffic in Houston. You, <laughs> you have to come to church after all the cussing you do on the highways. But just, you know, for 9,000 people to come, and I believe it's because they know my heart is pure and I'm authentic in what I share. I believe what I speak. You know, everybody says, oh, you're going to love Pastor John Gray. He's so funny. The thing about comedy is that comedians are usually very keen observers. Mm -hmm. And I could see that you are. And how do you use that comedy in your preaching, in your... Well, comedy disarms. Yeah. You know, it's the first thing. You know, everybody wants to laugh. Comedy disarms and it allows people to kind of put their guard down. Because the idea of somebody, you know, screaming truth at you is already kind of inherently offensive. Because <laughs> it's kind of like, you wrong, you getting ready to burn in a hot hell. Now give me an offering. Like, yeah. that is not the, that's not the way <laughs> I'm supposed to approach this. Yeah. For me, just allowing people to laugh and be disarmed. I think that's an aspect of God's character people don't realize. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. So for me, especially like when my wife gets mad at me, I'll just pull up my, you know, briefs up here. And I'm like, can you really be mad at this girl? And then she'll bust out <laughs> laughing because this physique is hilarious. But she can't stay mad because I've just infused joy. Yeah. And I believe that joy disarms the broken heart and it ah. allows healing to begin. And so every time I share, there's always going to be elements of the comedic. But I don't do it to pander. I'm not trying to be a stand-up comedian. I believe that my gift has an ability to unlock doors. And once that door is unlocked, let me share some truth that you have to now figure out what you want to do with. What is the truth you most want people to know? I mean, if you could wave the magic John Gray wand, if you could offer your grace and wisdom, what, would be, what is it you most want people to get? You are created by a God that is so intently, intimately in love and concerned about you that there is not one detail about your life that has been overlooked. You are not an accident. There are no accidental lives. You can't sneak into the earth. You have to be <laughs> spoken into the earth. Oh, I love that. Love it. Love you have it, to love be it, spoken because even Dr. Angelou said, you know, in the beginning was the word. I heard her say that on yeah. your show. Yes. I was like much younger and I had hair. I was thin. Anyway, and so, but when she says in the beginning was the word, each one of us has been spoken. And once we connect to the other words in our sentence, the thing that we were supposed to complete will be fulfilled. It's so interesting that you're talking about we've been spoken into because years ago, right here outside on that lawn, I did the Legends Ball 
with all of the women who had been inspirational to me in my life, Maya Angelou and Coretta Scott King and Diana Ross, all of them here. And Pearl Cleage, a playwright, author, poet in uh, Atlanta, wrote a poem called We Speak Your Names. And all the young women did this poem speaking the names of our elders. It was wow. the most powerful thing I've ever actually been a part of. Unbelievable. We Speak Your Names. And I believe that is a part of why I fight to do what I do, because my grandmother and my great-grandmother, who were prayer warriors, who, who were spiritually connected to God, mm -hmm. were praying for someone in our family mm -hmm. to do what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. I don't have a legacy of, of strong men who go after their dreams. I don't have a legacy of strong fathers and husbands. I came up in a single parent household. You know, my life was interrupted at four years old with, with people who tried to snatch my innocence away. Yeah. And in that moment, I could have lost, you know, whatever semblance or desire I had yeah. to, to touch the heart of God. But literally, I, I am reminded of, of my grandma, Anna Berry, and my grandmother, Mame Davis, who are now a part of the great cloud of witnesses. I carry that with me, knowing that I'm a part of something that did not start with me. And if I do it correctly, it will not end with me. So would you share that story of you being on the front lawn? I was uh, four years old. My father had just left. Uh, my mother was inside the house. The door was open. And uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, there were two uh, young men from the neighborhood, teenagers. And one of them came up to me and exposed himself while the other was standing right next to him. And he asked me to perform a particular act. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew what he was showing. I knew that was what you use to release your urine. And I said, please don't pee in, me, in my mouth. And he said, I won't. And then he did. And I remember running and saying, I'm gonna go tell my mommy on you. And he says, if you tell, you'll be the one that gets in trouble. And so I didn't tell anybody until I was 19. And so for 15 years, I'm trying to figure out what happened on that lawn. Mm -hmm. And how does that connect to a God? What kind of God would let that happen to a little kid? And you know, the thing, other thing is that, that I want to interrupt you just to say is the reason why it troubles so much, because you don't at four and five and seven have the language to even explain what that is. I didn't know, I had no clue. Mm -hmm. and, then, and, and then later to add, to that moment, I grew up in a very conservative household. So we didn't talk about sex and sexuality. We didn't talk about, and if it was brought up, it was brought up in a negative connotation that you can't have sex. You gotta be a virgin. My mama told me that when I was 13. I'm like, I got buck teeth and bald spots. It is not a problem. And so <laughs> I think for me, that moment, because it was so violent and intrusive, it caused me to question who I was, why I was, what I was. Did it cause you to question your own sexuality? I don't know that it did, because for as long as I can remember, I've always had an attraction to girls. Mm -hmm. But I was always, this may sound crazy, I was always empathetic to people who didn't have, you know, a natural affinity or a natural attraction mm -hmm. to the opposite sex. I can't tell you if that kind of gave me a seed to understand other people's mm -hmm. journey. In fact, it probably caused me in the, in the beginning to have less grace yeah. because I was very angry that somebody would try to snatch innocence. Absolutely. So when you said earlier that Lakewood is a place where all people are welcome, does that mean whether you're gay or straight or 
Mm -hmm. Transgender, doesn't matter. Transgender, doesn't matter. Yeah, we had a transgender woman came up with her son, and she said, would you take a picture? I was like, of course. And she's like, you don't know how much you bless me. And, you know, her truth may not be something that I understand, but my love will never change for who she is because I'm a pastor. And the fact that she's there with her son means she has every right to lift her hands to God. Well, I've heard you say that a platform can never make you, it can only reveal you. Absolutely. So how has this platform, this enormous stage with millions of followers really around the world, how has that revealed the truth of you? I think for as long as I can remember, there were churches that I was a part of, whether a youth pastor mm -hmm. or other positions, but I was never around a leader that was secure enough to allow me to be all of who I am. Ah. It took somebody like a Pastor Joel Osteen to have enough security in his position to say, here's a young man that has something very different from me. I'm going to release him to be exactly who he is, and I'm gonna trust that his heart mirrors mine. And when he allowed that, it, it literally freed me to become everything I felt God created me to be. Mm. Do you feel that when you're uh, standing there at Lakewood and you are every Wednesday night speaking to thousands of people that you are fulfilling your purpose? I do. Mm -hmm. People ask me that, like, are you happy? I'm like, happiness is not... That's not the word that comes to mind. I believe I'm doing what I was created to created do. Created to do, yeah. When you look in there, and you've been there, to see over 100 nations gathering, mm -hmm. lifting their hands to God, if that doesn't move you to see God's heart for people, mm -hmm. nothing will. Yeah, and you feel the presence of God when? Now. I'm a nature guy. Even though I live in a big city, uh, you put me next to a creek, put me next to a tree, you know, let me let me watch, you know, the birds kind of fly through the air. I feel God. I used to feel God in thunderstorms. Really? I, oh, absolutely. I would, uh, in our two-bedroom apartment in Cincinnati, we had no air conditioners. We had a fence behind my window. At 9 and 10 years old, I'd look out through our little clearing into the stars, and I would tell God what I wanted to do. I told him I wanted to be a husband. I told him if I ever fail him, please don't leave me. I wanted him to be proud of me. Uh, I, I wanted him to use my life to do something great. Uh, and then when we'd have those big thunder, Midwest thunderstorms in the middle of summer and spring, I'd run to the front porch and I'd sit out there because just feeling the rain on my feet made me feel like God was talking to me when I would hear the thunder and lightning. Wow. That, that's how he speaks to me. Some reason storms give me peace because I know he's in charge of it. Mm. So in the same way he's in charge of the natural storms, He's in charge of my spiritual storms, my emotional storms, the human condition. When I'm broken, when I want to give up, I know he's there. What would you say to someone who wants to want some of that, who wants to feel that kind of connection and passion and relationship? I know there are people who are watching and saying, the God you're talking about is not at my church. Right. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's not. Yeah. That God is a God I encountered away from the hour and a half service on Sunday. Uh -huh. That's the God I talked to at two in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's the God that. That's the bathroom floor God. Yeah. 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 That's the one where, where I'm crying tears and fighting for my own sanity, trying to figure out, you know, who I am at 13, 14, and 15, uh -huh. and believing that there was still purpose. Yeah. Getting to this space at Lakewood, 
Did you have to make some sacrifices? What do you think is the actually the most difficult choices you've had to make to fulfill your current destiny? Oh my goodness. I was, I used to sing background for Kirk Franklin. Ah. I remember we had just, he had just done The Tonight Show. And uh, I was like, this is awesome. And God says, you really like this? I said, yeah. He was like, this is your last show. And I was like, what are you talking about? Why would I ever give this up? I don't even have to, I don't even have to grow up to do this. He said, and that's my point. It's time for you to mature and I need to stretch you. And I went backstage at The Tonight Show and told Kirk Franklin, this is my last time touring with you. So wait a minute, you're backstage at The Tonight Show and God's talking to you? Well, I was on the premium couch by myself with no cameras. I was just out there just yeah, role that's what playing. I mean. yeah. Oh, Jay, you're so funny. Thank you for bringing me. It's awesome. Uh, but just role playing, just nobody there. But I really, that was a moment and it was my Abraham Isaac moment. This is what I always wanted. Growing up in a single parent, feeling like I had never been valued properly, right, right, rejected, right. Mm -hmm. growing up. Now I'm at this pinnacle and God was like, you want this or are you gonna give this to me? And I gave that moment to him and I said, I trust my future to you over what feels like the perfect present moment. Wow. And in that moment, I realized that in honoring him, I was trusting him to get me wherever he wanted me to go. See, honor is the currency of elevation. If you really want to- Oh, good. Okay, that's a tweetable moment. Honor is the currency mm -hmm. of elevation. I never heard that before, never had that thought before. It is. If you want to ascend to any area of influence or platform, you must learn the currency of honor. You can't be an extension of a heart you don't honor. You can't be an extension of a heart you don't honor. Absolutely, I've never said that. You brought that out of me. So half of that belongs to you, okay. <laughs> If we've all been spoken for, why does there have to be so much struggle, pain, and strife? I think it's the nature of the human condition. People say God created evil. No, God didn't create evil. God created free will. Yes. And man created evil. Yes. We have choice. And that's the... That's and evil is the absence, the complete absence of God. Absolutely. And don't you find that our degree of pain and suffering is in direct proportion to how far you are from the heart of God. Absolutely, I think the pain, for me, the pain actually, at first I ran from God because I'm like, why would you do this to me? Yeah. And I've heard you say, it's not happening to me. It's happening for me. It's happening for me. Yeah. Sometimes the pain feels like you're, you're regressing, but it's not, he's actually pulling you back like a bow and arrow. And the greater the pain and what looks like deficit is actually him getting ready to launch you. Mm -hmm. Because when you have a greater depth of understanding of other people's pain, he's actually expanding your platform. You talked about forgiving your father and loving him. What is the purpose of forgiveness? For me, the purpose of forgiveness is to identify myself in my dad. What I mean by that is I came from him. And so what he manifested, if I had made the same choices, I would manifest the same thing. For me to forgive him is to also remember him. Remember that he had dreams, that he had hopes, that maybe decisions he made he wished he could take back. Maybe I'm the thing that he did right, and I'm able to now perpetuate a part of his heart. Wow. When I forgave my father, the pieces of my life that didn't make sense suddenly made sense. 
December 7th of 2000 was an awakening for me. Mm. And I was able to release the pain of being held hostage because I was so hurt that he wasn't there when I was four years old to protect me from the big bad men mm -hmm. that I held him responsible. And many other spaces in, in your every life. Every other area. Of your life. Looking yeah. up in the stands when I played soccer. I was running around on the field and I'd look up in the stands and of course he wasn't there. But I was always looking, hoping that he would be. Even now when I preach, sometimes I'm hoping that he's somewhere out there. I know he's not, but I wish he was. Mm. No matter how many times I see my mom, and I love her, and I'm grateful for that she's still alive. But that thing, that lingering thing is, I want dad to be proud. Mm. And since I don't have him in the natural, my connection to my spiritual father, my heavenly father, is what drives me. There are times when I sit on the edge of my bed and I cry my eyes out while my wife is asleep. I say, God, I don't know how to be a husband. I don't know how to be a father, but if you help me to stay this day, I'll embrace the challenge. Hmm. And I asked my wife, please give me grace. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I was a 37-year-old virgin. I gave her the best two minutes of her life on that honeymoon. You understand me? <laughs> I said, girl, I'm getting ready to bless you. Oh, and I said, you better get in this limo. It's time for me to lay hands. <laughs> so, <laughs> amen, somebody. Amen, somebody. But, you know, this idea that you suddenly magically become you know, an overnight success is you just... You purposely waited until you were 37. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I was 13 when, like I said, when my mom was like, you're going to be a virgin. And at 16, I made the commitment. And so I was thinking I was going to get married in my 20s. And I'm like, by the time I was 30, I was like, all right, Jesus, I'm, I'm tired of living holy now. I, <laughs> I want to know what all these other folk are doing out here. Uh, I've got a phenomenal wife, brilliant, three degrees in the medical field. She laid all that down to help me build my vision. I'm not sitting in this chair because of me. I chose the right one. It was God that spoke to me and said, this is a woman that you should pursue. And I was like, okay. And I pursued her and April 17th of 2010, I asked her to be my girlfriend. In July, I asked her to marry me. And in December, I got me some. So <laughs> <laughs> we got married December. Was it year. worth the wait? Absolutely, absolutely. And the reality is I have nothing to compare her to. So, of course, she's the greatest thing ever. But <laughs> <laughs> the reason why it was worth the wait is because I honored my mom. Mm. Because she waited until she was married. And so she asked me to do the same. And so for me, I get to kind of build on that legacy. And I wanted to give that gift to my wife. Mm. What is the word do you think that best describes who you are and why you're here? Committed. I'm committed to letting people know that there's a God that absolutely adores them. People don't know that. People don't know that they, there's someone who is in love with them, yeah. who has power, who wants to see them do well. People don't know it. And so my life's calling is to be the, the guy that unlocks. I'm an unlocker. I'm a discerner. That's my gift, discernment. I'm able to see into people and then pull out of them what was already there so that they can view it in a different way. And then they can look at the bad, take the lesson, but then digest the good and then go forward. That's, that's my job. Once I unlock, then I'm the bridge. My job is to unlock it and say, look, God had this in there all the time. All the time. The entire time. Linda the Good Witch said that too. Did to Dorothy. Oh, she did. She did. Right at the end. Right at the end. Glinda the Good Witch. You've always okay, had so it. I thought I was a prophet, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Judy Garland. Ruined my super soul moment. Thanks. <laughs> So what is the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn for yourself? That my brokenness 
was not a deterrent to God's purpose. Mm. I always thought I had to please God. I was a behavior based, you know, servant. I thought I had to behave in a certain way, but behavior is, is not what he was looking for. My being is what he was looking for. Yeah. It says those that worship must worship in spirit and in truth, mm -hmm. not spirit and perfection, not spirit and religion, spirit and truth. Everything that's true about me is not good, but he wants me to worship in my true condition. And in that place of that moment, he receives me as I am. Yeah. I am not willing anymore to live on a behavior-based relationship. My father loves me because I came from him. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. I am loved because I am. I was birthed from him. How could he not receive me? Yeah. And so this is the great challenge. And it took me my entire life to awaken to this, that my wife will tell you after I would preach, I say, God, are you proud of me? I just want you to be proud of me. And she said, babe, he was proud of you before you got up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he loves you. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. So I don't have to do anything. Right. And that's where people will get free. That our relationship to God is not performance based. It's blood based. My relationship is blood strong. God doesn't do, do uh, tender relationships. They're not, they're, they're not easily fractured. He will fight for you. And that's what I've learned. His love for me is everlasting. And when I fall, he loves me the exact same. Yeah, and what we're looking for is the experience of God. Always. Always. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. 